Uh, as we're turning to Luke chapter 1, looking at the first four verses of Luke, I just want to say a couple things. One is, it is very nice to be back, and um, I'm very thankful that, for the most part, as far as I could tell, everybody came to church and uh, for the last three months, and um, that does my heart good. I mean, I, I'm in okay health. I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. But you want to know that your church is, well, I was talking to one of our former elders, Dan Lampkins, at some level, your pastor needs to be expendable. Like, you, you, the church is not built on the people, it's built upon Christ. And it also is very comforting to me, and I'm very grateful for our session, who many of them got up here and exhorted for me to know that I'm surrounded by a group of men who rightly divide and handle the word of God and will get up here and, and deliver that message. It's really a very comforting thing for me to, to see that happen. Nonetheless, one of the goals of my sabbatical uh, was to be restless to come back, which I am. <laughs> We're looking at, oh, and by the way, um, we, you know, we live here in the beach community, and we have, those of you who go to the beach a lot, and there's a lot of you in this room. You should see your dermatologist every once in a while, which I do. And my wife was like, you got this little thing right here. People are going to be distracted by this little thing. Now, if you hadn't seen it, you can see it. And now you will be. To, I'm perfectly fine. You know, I go to my dermatologist once a year, and he's like, hey, you want me to snap that off? I'm like, sure, go ahead. And so he did that. And so that's this little thing, but I'm, I'm fine. So don't look at that. Let's look at Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we embark upon this gospel, we do pray that we would come to understand in a deep and rich way the gospel the good news that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, the good news that you have made a promise that you've kept in our mediator, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we do pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would quicken our understanding, help us to understand deep and lovely things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's kind of customary when you begin a new book to spend a little bit of time introducing the author. You know, this is written by Luke. But you know, if you go through Luke, you know what you'll never see? The name Luke. He wasn't all that interested, at least in Luke, of including himself in the story. As we see in the passage we just read, he's telling a story. He's not including himself in the story. But I'm going to go from Luke to Acts, both written by Luke. And when we get to Acts, he's very much included in the story. But here, no, he's not included. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Luke. 
We will see a couple of things, though. He was not likely an eyewitness of the things that he's writing about. The, the eyewitnesses told him about these things. So like us, he came to faith via the testimony of somebody else. So that makes him kind of unique in terms of a writer in the New Testament. Also, he spent a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. So if you spend a lot of time with the Apostle Paul and you're an able student, which Luke no doubt was, he knew a lot about the things he was writing. I mean, not to you know, leave aside the fact that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he was well acquainted with the subject matter. Matter of fact, some people think that he was, here's a big word for you, the word for the morning, he was Paul's amanuensis. And amanuensis is somebody who you dictate to and they write. A lot of people thought Paul had like an eye issue and he couldn't really write. We could see that if we look at certain letters where he actually goes, I'm writing this in my own hand and the letters are big. So a lot of people think that when Luke was traveling with Paul, he was the one writing the letters that Paul would send to churches. All indications are that he was also the only Gentile to write a book in the New Testament. A Gentile is somebody who's not a Jew. Now, I mentioned these things for us to be able to appreciate some of the things we're going to see Luke emphasizing that might not be emphasized by other writers. He's not writing as a Jew, and he's really not writing to a Jewish audience the way we might see in Matthew when we went through Matthew. Like, let me give you one example. In Matthew, there's a genealogy, right? And, and he begat her, and her, she begat him, and he begat, you know, the begats, right? In Matthew, the begats go back to who? Anybody know? Abraham. And why does it go back to Abraham? Because Abraham was a predominant figure in the Jewish community. So if you were a Jew, you knew Abraham. But in chapter 3, Luke is going to actually have a genealogy, and you know who it goes back to? Adam, who predates Israel. So we see the kind of universality of this gospel. He was also a doctor, the beloved physician. Must have been nice for Paul, traveling around to have a doctor with him. We have a doctor on our elder board, our beloved physician, Dr. Eddie. I feel quite comfortable with him in the room, you know, when something might happen. But as a physician writing, he might be a little more detail-oriented than the other writers might have been. Luke doesn't assume that his readers have an awareness of Jewish culture. He doesn't assume that his readers really understand the Old Testament that well, that book written prior to the birth of Christ, anticipating and pointing to Christ. So, sadly, I guess, he'll be good for us, because I think all of us could be a little more conversant with the Old Testament, right? It's a long book. It's a hard book. So Luke is kind of like catering to our lack of understanding of what is written in that Old Testament. Sometimes, if you have a good teacher, I've had some good teachers in my life, 
when they're dealing with a difficult subject, they'll use this phrase. They'll go, let me paint you a picture. Right? And they don't really paint a picture. Like they, it's like a, a word picture. That's what Luke does. He's a, he's, a, he's a painter of pictures. The philosopher and theologian Joseph Ernest Renan said this about Luke. He said, it is the most beautiful book ever written. Now, Mark, the shortest gospel, if I could put it this way, you know, not to sound irreverent, Mark is like the paparazzi. Picture, 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 picture. Like, and it's a short gospel, and he kind of hits things and moves on, right? Not Luke. Luke's the longest gospel. And what we have is him stopping and painting pictures. Pen pictures for us. We might think of, and it dawned on me when I posted this, that not everybody knows Norman Rockwell. Just for my sake, how many of you have heard of Norman Rockwell? Oh, okay. All right. He's a, an artist and he, he, he would paint, you know, he's passed away, but he would paint very simple, real-life pictures, right? A family picnic or a child visiting the doctor, you know, or a couple in a diner. It's just, you look at it and you go, there's a picture, and I kind of get a feel for what's going on in that, in that picture, in that painting. For those of you who don't know, we just spent... 66 weeks in Revelation, we're done. It was a little bit of a workout, I know, for, for me and for many of you. In Revelation, we had the difficulty of navigating things celestial, prophetic, apocalyptic. I mean, you read Revelation, and it's a hard book. Right? A lot of imagery, right? a lot of literary things that we try to get our arms around and understand. Luke may be the most opposite book in the Bible to the Revelation. Luke writes of things palpable, touchable. He tends to focus on Jesus, the man. Surely, he'll, it'll be Jesus, the God-man. But Luke will focus on Jesus, the man. He also digs deeper into the humanity of the people included in the gospel. So he's very much into like what he's watching and what it might feel like for those of us if we could actually see it. Most of, uh, most of what we see on people's lawns during Christmas comes from Luke. Without Luke, we wouldn't have, you know, the elaborate nativity that we see. Luke is the one who records, he's going to take a long time recording that event. He also is the only one who talks about Jesus as a 12-year-old. So he's kind of bringing us into the humanity of Christ, even as, even as a child. What we see, what we're going to see in Luke are things we don't see in other Gospels. The story of the Good Samaritan, only in Luke. The prodigal son, only in Luke. The publican and the sinner, only in Luke. Lazarus and the rich man, only in Luke. Now, you might go, well, there's four Gospels, and three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
They call the synoptic gospels. They call them that because they kind of look alike. They, they cover the same stuff, but Luke covers it quite differently than Matthew and Mark. Luke underscores more than any other writer that Jesus, the man, needed prayer. I don't, you know, the, I know for me as a young Christian, I had a hard time getting my arms around Jesus not only needing prayer, but praying himself. But we've got to understand that when the Bible talks about Jesus, the man, he's truly man. That's why he didn't know things, right? He didn't, he didn't know the hour of the apocalypse because he was truly man. What we're going to learn in Luke is that Jesus grew not only in stature, but he grew in wisdom. How does God get smarter? How does God grow wiser? No, it was Luke the man who grew wiser. We're going to see that in Luke. Luke's the one who wrote that Jesus often drew, drew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Luke's the one who's going to record that before Jesus picked the 12 apostles, he prayed all night. The transfiguration, which is recorded in Matthew and Mark, but Luke's the one who says that Peter and James and John, they went there to pray. We don't see that in the others. It's like they're going up to pray. So he's including these types of things that we don't see elsewhere. Even the word, this might be shocking to you, the word salvation is not in Matthew and it's not in Mark. But it's in Luke a lot. The word grace, that's a big word. Half the churches in our denomination are named grace. Not in Matthew, not in Mark, but in Luke a lot. These types of things, these very personal things are prominent in the gospel that we're going to, to study. Though other gospel, I'm going to give you an example here because other gospel writers, they wrote about Jesus being anointed for his burial by women. That's something we see. But Luke is the only one who records this, a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. I mention that because you can see how personal this is. I mean, we'll get into that when the time comes. But Luke's the only one who actually records the final disposition of that event when he writes this. Then he said to her, this is Jesus speaking, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke, perhaps more than any other gospel writer, touches the human experience. Luke goes into detail in his pen art, sketching things like the nefarious, murderous coalition of the dark clergy in their attack of Jesus. He goes into detail there. He wants us to know how dark that event was. 
He goes into detail in the venom of the betrayer's kiss. He paints that picture in detail. The panic-struck breakup of the apostles, right? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will run. I mean, he goes into detail on that. The fiendish hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish court. He goes into detail. The sarcastic mockery of Herod. He goes into detail. And the political expediency and cowardice of Pilate. He goes into detail. And he is telling us the story. It's been said that Luke sets forth Jesus in all the simple purity, lovely and naturalness, profound beauty, and moral sublimity of his sinless manhood. What we're going to see in Luke is that Jesus was so humble that nobody could humiliate him. What we're going to see in Luke was that he was so loving that nothing could dissuade him. He was so honest that no one could deceive him. Even on the cross, Luke records something not found in the other Gospels. You know, remember, Jesus was accompanied by two people, right? And in, in one of the Gospels, it talks about both of them kind of screaming at Jesus. But, but one of them had a change of heart. But Luke's the only one who mentions that. The criminal next to Jesus makes this final petition Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Boy, you wonder what must have happened to that guy on the cross. You know, it took took a while to die on the cross. So he had a lot of time to think. And he goes from yelling at Jesus to making this petition, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Luke emphasizes that it was a man. And I remember, I remember having a hard time getting my arms around this, that this idea that somebody would take upon himself not only my sin, but your sin, and take upon himself the sin of all who would ever call upon his name. I can't, my mind doesn't get there. I have a hard enough time dealing with my own sin. I wouldn't want your sin imputed to me, especially not, no, just kidding. <laughs> but he took upon himself the sin of the world, he was a man who did that. It was a man. It, we needed a representative. We needed a mediator. We needed somebody to represent us. And so God provided a body for the Son of God to come and take upon himself the wrath that we all deserved. So Luke emphasizes that it was a man who was betrayed. It was a man who was denied, deserted, falsely accused, and deceptively tried. He was nailed to a cross, anticipating the wrath of God. Let me tell you, what people did to Jesus is nothing compared to what God did to Jesus. He became sin, that all of our sin, all the wrath that we deserved fell upon Christ. Luke is going to hammer that, that we might understand and appreciate that. And Jesus, anticipating that wrath, because he knew what was coming, ministered to his last breath. He, he never had this, I'm done with it. I've had it. I didn't sign up for this. That never happened. 
with Jesus, which Luke accentuates. This gallery of Christ that Luke bids us to walk through, this gospel is what we're going to be looking at in the weeks and months to come. But I want to start just with these four verses that we read. I'm occasionally asked uh, by people not only in our own church, but people I know in the community, if a handshake is sufficient for some business dealings with a friend. I guess that handshake, you know, because you see it in movies, right? All I ever did was shake his hand, you know, and everything was great. I have to say, my standard answer, because I have plotted around this narrow globe for a long time and I've seen things pan out, my standard answer is, put it in writing. Handshakes, they're nice. But sometimes relationships sour. But even, even aside from that, sometimes what you remember the handshake meaning isn't what they remember the handshake meaning. It's good for you to kind of both understand and have it in writing, what did we just agree to? Because people tend to forget. And oftentimes they forget to their own advantage. Put it in writing. How much more critical is this type of clarity when it comes to our relationship with God? This covenant, that, this, this, you know, this, this contract love relationship called a covenant that God has with us that he's going, I'm writing it down. Religion, you know, Religion can be reduced to sentimentality. It can be reduced to intuitions, emotions, nostalgia, culture. All sorts of things kind of feed into our religion. Feelings, don't get me wrong, I love feelings. Feelings can be a wonderful thing. But sometimes we take the word think and we we replace it with the word feel. What we really mean is I think something. What we say oftentimes is I feel something. Those are two different things. And we need to recognize that truth loves a definition. And God is going to protect us from our own flesh, whether it's sentimentality, our intuitions, our feelings, by putting it in writing. When I do weddings... The lion's share of time in the wedding that I do is me explaining what these words mean. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to cherish? What does it mean to honor? What does it mean to be faithful? Oh, these are words that are so abstract, and people go wherever they want with those words, but God is very definite. He's very definite in terms of understanding that we need things written out for us. Now, by the time Luke wrote this gospel, which it's probably, you know, 30 or so years after the crucifixion, give or take. Other accounts of the events of Christ's life were already being written. You'll hear atheists say that oh, there are no historians that acknowledge Christ. It's only the Bible. That's simply not true. Tacitus, Josephus, Tacitus, who was Rome, a Roman historian. Josephus was a Jewish historian. They wrote about Jesus. So, we, people are writing about Jesus already. 
And so we see in verse 1, recognizing that things are being written about Jesus. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. He's like going, people are writing about this. Now, he's not necessarily saying those things were wrong. He's not necessarily saying those things are, are bad. There are uninspired, unbiblical, extra-biblical records of things that can be of value. So I don't think he's necessarily saying these things, but some, of, some things are, are false. But it was in the mind of Luke, by the Spirit of God, in verse 3, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. That's what we're going to be looking at in the next year or so, this orderly account. In this little journey we're going to take through Luke and Acts, we have an inspired, and that means by the Holy Spirit moving the writers, the way, um, the way a wind pushes a sailboat. Sequential, it's an order, he's got this in order. Inerrant, you've heard that word? The Bible is inerrant, that means it's without error. And infallible, which means not only is the Bible without error, it's incapable of error. And these are the words that we're going to be reading in the weeks and months to come. What I really like about what we're about to do, what I have to say I'm kind of excited myself about getting in my study and doing this is that what we have in Luke through Acts is the whole story. It's the whole story of redemption. It starts, it starts with the the birth, the pregnancy of Elizabeth, it starts with the birth of John the Baptist, who's just a few months older than Jesus, it starts there, and it ends, whenever we get there, with the Apostle Paul under house arrest, still preaching the gospel. We're going to see that whole story. I, 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 I don't intend to go into the weeds. I don't intend to do deep dives on every word. I kind of like to get through this big picture. Some, there are places where I'll, I'll stop and go, this needs to be hit on a little bit more. But I want us to appreciate the big picture. Friends, God made a promise in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. That promise started in Genesis. It was Genesis 3.15. Right after the fall, God is going, I'm not going to leave you at the mercy of sin and death. The seed of the woman is going to rescue you from your enemy. And all of the Old Testament, all of those books, Jesus said, were about him. They're all anticipating him. What we're going to find in Luke and Acts is a record of God keeping his promise. He's the promise keeper. We're the promise breakers. God is the promise keeper. He's writing to Theophilus. We don't know who that is. The The word means lover of God. So all likelihood, it was, you know, I mean, this is purely outside the Bible, but Historically, people think he was a Roman Christian. He was a Christian who was from Rome. But we don't know for sure. 
But like any other book in the Bible, and I mentioned this going through Revelation many times, whether it's written to a church, right, like the church at Corinth, or written to a bunch of churches, like the churches of Galatia, or written to an individual, like Timothy. To the extent that we find ourselves in a similar situation, it's written to us. Theophilus, lover of God. So if you want to be a lover of God, Luke is the book for you. Luke would have us know, and he uses this word, these words, and there's one I want to point out, the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. He's like, I want you to be certain. I don't want you to be guessing. That word certainty is a very strong word. It could also be translated safety or security. Luke will use it in Acts, talking about a secure prison. He's like, there's no getting out of this. This is locked. And he's saying that about the very words that he's about to write. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because I find it so refreshing in a world where it has become increasingly difficult to determine what is true. I mean, when I was a kid, if Walter Cronkite said it, it was true. Now I have to watch MSNBC, CNN, Fox, Epic. I got to kind of watch all of those. And then I got to do Venn diagrams to figure out what actually happened. But it's tough. But God is so gracious. He has deposited, my friends, an oracle, a revelation, and it's on our laps. And every year, it's the bestseller. And there's never been a book ever written that has been so attacked, so disallowed, or so perverted than the Bible. You, you pick an era in history. You know, there was a time when it was like, no, the common man can't have it because he won't be able to figure it out. You, you give that to the common man and you're going to be put to death. Other people would say, well, it's all just some, some big literary device and there's four levels that you can reach to. And oh, what, like, there are more games played with the Bible than any book ever, ever written. But I don't, here's my fear, because I'm looking at this going, all right, well, I'm a pastor in 21st century America. What's the deal now? You can read your Bible all you want. I mean, that may come to an end, you know, with the direction things are going. But you, right now, you can read it all day long. You can go right into Starbucks or whatever and just open your Bible and start reading. Nobody's disallowing it. Is it perverted? Yeah, you could turn on the television and listen to televangelists, and I'm just scratching my head going, where are they getting that message from that passage? We need to be wise and discerning learners of everybody, myself included. Don't just believe it because I'm saying it. You know, when we start the service, or we read the passage, and I say, hear, hear now the word of God, and then I read the word of God, then I say, thus far the reading of God's word. That's where the inspiration ends. And the rest, to be honest, is my opinion. Well, I, I try to do my homework. I hope my opinion is accurate. But I am Pastor Paul. I am not the Apostle Paul. So you need to test all things and hold to what is true. 
But I don't think that's, that is not my big fear right now in terms of the Word of God. I think that the big problem today is lethargy. A.W. Pink made a statement, and this was a while ago, and this might sound harsh to current sensitivities, but I think it is accurate and profound, and if it really bothers you, Dave Kennard, one of our former elders who went to be with the Lord, used to say, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one you hit. So if this is bothering you, maybe, yeah, you can bark if you like. But he wrote this. He said, the Bible is no lazy man's book. Much of its treasure, like the valuable minerals stored in the recesses of the earth, only yield up themselves to the diligent seeker. No verse of scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. You know, there's an old saying that says, good fences make good neighbors. And I think that it's not saying we should be separate from our neighbors. What that saying means is we need to know the boundaries. What's your property? What's my property? God does that with his word. He sets the boundaries. I said earlier, truth loves the definition. We see the definition in the scriptures. God defines what truth is. God defines what love is. God defines what faith is. God defines what righteousness is. He defines what evil is. It's there in black and white. God has provided these defining parameters in his word. Now, not to get into the details on this, but against common objections, the Bible, the Bible is not merely the opinion of men. It's not even the opinion of the church. The church did not establish the Bible. The Bible established the church. All the church did was recognize that which God had already done. It was for our safety. It was for our security. It provides you not only the freedom, but the responsibility to question me because you have a Bible on your lap. Only the word of God can hold the human conscience. Only God can do that. You're not, you're not guilty before me. Remember what David said when he was guilty before everybody, right? Guilty before Bathsheba, Uriah. Against the Lord and against the Lord only I have sinned. That's the big problem. The problem isn't my relationship with you or your relationship with your neighbor. It's our relationship with God. But it is for our safety and our security that our confession, the Westminster Confession, which our church holds to, that God committed his word, and I quote, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, unto writing. Put it in writing. Write these things. Luke is writing these things for us. Now, it's up to you to read it. 
I have the advantage. You know why? Because I have a job that requires I read it. Maybe God knew something about me. Maybe he's like, well, if I don't make you a pastor, you're going to miss a lot of church and you won't read your Bible. So I'm going to make you a pastor, so you're going to have to read it. And what a, what a wonderful job to get up and have reading the Bible be your job. But it's probably not your job, so you're going to have to find time to open it and read it. When I first taught, the first time I went to China and taught the underground church there, it was before Pastor Pan. Pastor Pan was the, when I went later. They had very little understanding of things like systematic theology or church history. They, they didn't get all that. They, they were kind of closed off to the West. And that's what they wanted me to teach about. They wanted me to teach systematic theology, confessions, church history. So I did. But you know, I'll tell you, you know what they did know? They knew the Bible. I remember sitting in that room with about 40 pastors... And I could hardly quote a verse without everybody in the room knowing the verse. They all knew the verse. And when I was able, the times when I was able, to help them understand how certain verses or certain passages functioned within the overall beauty and consent of all the parts of the Bible, when I was like, here's how this verse works in the entirety of the Bible, it fed them. You could, I could see them kind of just rejoicing, like, oh, I see where this fits. And you know what? When, I, when that fed them and I saw them respond, you know what happened? They fed me. And so I'm looking to you to open your Bible and start reading it. We have a unique situation in this church where we have question and answer time after church. Show up with your question. I'm not the Bible answer man. I don't have every answer. But I'll try to find what the answer is. And usually somebody in the room might have the answer. I'll call upon them. Read a verse. I don't know. You know, I, I don't know where you're at. Like, you might go, you don't understand, Pastor Paul. You read a chapter a day. I read a book, a day. I, you know, I read a book in the Bible every day. If that's you, then amen. But if not, you know the old saying, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. You you ever get out of shape? You know, you're trying to exercise and you get out of shape. I, um, I have this theory, and that is if my first day I try to work out, I do like a 90-minute workout. That'll be my last day. <laughs> Sometimes, not to imitate. Sometimes my workout begins with me putting my shoes in the car <laughs> for a few days. Right? You start with something manageable. Read a verse. Then read a, maybe a chapter. Get into the habit. Make it be your routine. I don't agree with, uh, you know, I will quote people I don't agree with. Especially when, if I'm trying to expose an error, or if they just happen to say something really good. Ralph Waldo Emerson, I, I don't agree with his theology. But when it comes to 
starting to lay bricks in our lives to build that edifice that we are all called to be, right? That temple that God is constructing, both in us and with us. I think Emerson had a really good point. And he said this. He said, sow a thought. You know what it means to sow something, right? Just start, you know, tilling the field of thinking. Sow a thought, reap an action. Every action starts with a thought. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Now you can, this can be good or, these habits could be good or bad. Thoughts could be good or bad. I'm encouraging you to go down the good road here. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Luke will help us sow thoughts. And they will be thoughts of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray as we embark upon this journey through the gospel of Luke. Truly, Holy Spirit, your words, that you, Spirit, would give us the wisdom to grasp what you would have us know. Help us to be wise unto Christ. Help us to know what what it meant that a man, this mediator, this one who represents us before you, who he is and what he did, that our lives might be ever changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.